welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm Max. I'm Rich. And on this podcast, we will be talking about the Weird War Tales comic book published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we will be discussing, in particular, Weird War Tales number two. Published on cover date was November-December 1971. On sale date was September 23rd, 1971. Uh, So the cover of the issue uh, mentions that it was 48 pages for only 25 cents. The cover image was, of course, drawn by Joe Kubert and features a crying adult daughter being consoled by her mother about a horrible dream she had overnight about Johnny. And the image in particular shows the uh, background of a telegram or a tele... Uh, what is this? Is telegram. Western telegram. telegram. Okay, yeah. Back to inform you. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, a, a notice sent to inform them of the death of Private John Case, you know, who, who died overnight while this woman was having a nightmare about Johnny. And again, it's a Joe Kubert drawing. It's great. The effect of the... Uh, telegram in the background with an image of a fallen soldier superimposed on that is 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 excellent there's good storytelling here because you have um you have the woman crying you have a picture on her nightstand of johnny saying judy i love you and then you have an alarm clock that shows what time it is in the morning you have some time indicated on the telegram so you could put this whole story together from this one image and you know that it's just a testament to how much joe Kubert can cram into one drawing and not have it seem cluttered there's even a date there's a wall calendar in the woman's bedroom, and you can see the date on the telegram in the background. Again, it's it's a masterclass in storytelling. So second cover by Joe Kubert, and even better than the first. So you know, right away, second issue, off to a pretty darn good start. And then we uh, open up the issue, and we are treated to an opening sequence. Again, another framing sequence, framing some, a mix of reprinted and original material. And this one is a three-pager, and Rich is going to tell us all about it. Yep, that I am. Hey, well, it's the Sahara Desert, 1944. And I'm going to lunge right into Killjoy was here and say there was no fighting in North Africa in 1944. The fighting had long since moved into Italy and France and points north. So right off the get-go, whoops, but... Whatever. But the story shows a, an American tank blown onto its side. There's a there's flaming wreckage of a German airplane uh, slightly in the distance. And there's a radio call coming out of the tank saying, Blue Fox Iron Horse, we've lost contact with you. Come in. And there's no answer. And there's the next panel is footprints walking away from the two destroyed vehicles. And uh, only a single set of tracks, your tracks, tells of a sole survivor. And you see the shadow over windswept sands with the word balloons. If I don't find water, I'll die. Oh no, a sandstorm. And then you just see like the clawed hands of uh, the survivor just clawing himself over the sand dunes, fingernails digging into brittle sand. And the survivor sees, says, what's that? It's, it's an oasis. And he gets up and he stumbles into the oasis and he finds water, but the water looks purple. And he's like, hmm, maybe it's poison. Who cares whether I live now or die later? But that's where something catches your attention out the corner of your eye. And it's a moving figure. It's a robe figure. It's a hag, really. It's a, another example of the marvelous Joe Kubert 
detail work. And this woman, if it's a woman, has been here for a very, very, very long time. Is this another instance of old woman, man? <laughs> it, well, like I said, we, we're, we're assuming it's a woman. There's no concrete proof that it is one way or the other. But whoever this individual is tells the, the survivor to drink heartily, soldier, and rest. You have many battles to fight, many dangers to face. And the survivor is like, who are you? Probably a desert hyena who strips the dead of both sides. Well, I'm not dead yet. And the desert creature, you know, yells back, you're a fool. And then you get the super duper extreme close-up of the scaly-faced individual with the soulless black eyes and two teeth and everything. And it just gets the whole rundown. It says, like, I have seen men fall, torn victims of merciless warfare. They've numbered as many as the grains of sand in the desert. I have no need to live on their misfortunes. Rather, through me, their brave lives and deeds will be remembered forever. Their stories have been written into eternal wind on the everlasting dunes. And the survivor apologizes and says, well, you could have killed me before. And says, like, I understand. A warrior's lot is that of peril and of suspicious of impending doom. But see here, I can create the images of men locked in the final jest. War. Look and listen. And we get to the first reprinted story of the comic book, and I will punt this back over to Maxwell. Well, first, I want to go over the, that three pages, um, that little intro, because again, it, you know, it's, 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 it's perfunctory. It's there just to set up the fact that they're going to be telling short stories and whatever, you know, but we have incredible work by Kubert. I mean, it's always incredible, but like on the second page, the third panel, look at those hands, man. That's, he just, some of the hardest things that comic book artists struggle with drawing. And those are some of the best hands I've ever seen in a comic book. And, and this is 1971 Joe Kubert. You know, but yes, he's been working for a long time at this point. But still, the, the body language just in a pair of hands, because that's all you ever see of this survivor in this entire three pages are his two hands, maybe his boots, you know. But most of the acting is done by his hands. Like in the final panel on page two, you can see the accusatory pointing finger. And then that robed figure saying, you are a fool, brought to mind to me that moment in the Lord of the Rings movies where Gandalf rises up and fills the room. And he's like, take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks, do you? You know, this one of those moments where, you know, the guy's being cowed into silence. And then you see the face, that close up you described of, I'm going to call him the old man. But um, the, the... it's a four fifths panel. I mean, it is yeah. it is most of the page, and again, the detail work. You look, at this, this this the skin is all scaly. You see scars and scabs, and it's it, again. I mean, we, we, every bit of love that you give to Joe Kubert is well deserved because <laughs> the man's yeah. a legend. I mean, it's just like incredible. Yeah, those black eyes and just two teeth remaining just it's just cool so you know even though it's it's there to do what it's supposed to do just intro the concept of the book Kubert doesn't slack off it's the work is amazing the storytelling's great and it gives a you know a fair setup for why we're going to be seeing a bunch of short stories now because he's literally the old man's going to be generating these images that the survivor can see or you know purple water is pretty powerful stuff either <laughs> way so we do get to the first um reprinted story as you said and that one is called the reef of no return written by bob haney who i love 
uh, I have a deep love of Bob Haney and his crazy work, especially on the Brave and the Bold comic in the 70s. But even more astonishingly to me, illustrated by Mart Drucker of Mad Magazine fame. Now, I, other than this story right here, I've never seen any of Mart Drucker's so-called serious comic book work. I've only seen his Mad Magazine stuff. So seeing him do a story that isn't meant for laughs and is drawn even more realistically than his usual style is kind of a treat right away. This one was reprinted from Our Fighting Forces 43 from March of 1959. And according to you, you have the original of most of these books, if not all of them. Uh, according to you, this was the second story in that issue. So as we go through this issue and probably the remaining issues of the first seven that are reprint heavy, Rich will be chiming in with um, comments about changes and, you know, alterations between the original issue and the reprint and Weird War Tales. So we got that going for us. Um, as far as the story opening, you know, uh, let's just describe the opening page here. We've got, you know, uh, two panels up top that are relatively small and depicting a, a reef getting blasted from the air by planes. Planes and bombs pounded, or pounded the reef from the air and submarines sent torpedoes hurling into the reef from the depths. And then the bottom panel takes up the rest of the page and it shows the reef. It shows the back of a diver's head in the foreground. And then it has this picture-in-picture -picture style panel of the old man from the Oasis, just sort of pasted in there saying, Man has devised the most terrible weapons of war in order to vanquish his enemy. Is it not ironic that man himself is the ultimate weapon? Now, obviously, this is just pasted in uh, to, to further the conceit that these are stories being told by the old man at the Oasis. So what was originally there in our fighting forces? Yeah, we, the whole thing is... is why are the why are the Americans trying to destroy this reef? The way it's presented right now in this reprint, they don't tell you. It, it seems like almost like a pointless exercise. But if you look at the original, where this little uh, pasted-in panel is, it tells you. Bottom line, this reef is in the way of an island that the Allies need to invade. So this reef needs to go away. So the objective in the short term is to destroy this reef so the island that is beyond the reef can be invaded and taken away from the Japanese. Yeah, ecological consequences be damned. <laughs> this is war. <laughs> so that's the setup and you know, we, we go on from there. I'll just I'll just kind of briefly summarize the rest of the story here. We've got one last frogman is sent to try and blow up this reef. They're they're gonna send out this guy, so many people have failed before. And, you know, I made a note here that says where the thing is and why it needs to be blown up seems to get, seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle here. And then boom, you come in with, oh yeah, because in the original comic, they actually told you what the hell was going on. So the frogman jumps out of the plane, or so it seems on, on the next, you know, on the, on the next page. But then it's mentioned he sent a decoy down first where it seems to me that whatever jumped out of the plane before the decoy went down was, was talking. But, you know, a little storytelling confusion there, um, which I expect in a book written by Bob Haney and an artist that he probably didn't speak to. So decoys away, the real frogman then parachutes down onto the island and tries to swim out to the reef because his idea is, I'll, you know, do it differently. I'll, I'll, 
I'll dive right down onto the island and then go out to the reef from behind enemy lines. No one's tried that yet. So the enemy shoots at him on the beach to no avail. He, uh, well, he goes out onto the beach. He sees his, um, his gear from the decoy out, like staked up like a scarecrow on the beach. And it's obviously a trap. And he's like, I need some of that gear. So I'm going to try to get it off the little scarecrow. So he runs across the beach. The enemy shoots at him, completely misses. Uh, he, he grabs the explosives, but he has to leave all the other gear on the beach. So he swims out with no suit, no tank, no flippers, just, just the explosives. He swims out through a net. The enemy frogmen are sent after him. He beats the crap out of all of them underwater, again, just holding his breath, plants the explosives, and swims off to victory. So hooray for environmental destruction and for unreasonably capable American soldiers. So, you know, we get a little embellishment at the victorious panel here of, um, you know, again, repeating the, the message in the beginning, planes and bombs pounded the reef from the air. Submarines sent torpedoes into it from the depths, but only one weapon erased the reef from the war. And then they don't say it, but you know, that was man. And then we get our make war, no more button. And that little story is over. And all it really told you was that this guy is Captain America and probably should have been used to do everything uh, that they ever wanted to get accomplished because, man, he can hold his breath, swim through a net, beat a bunch of people up. They show at least three frogmen coming down at him and he just houses them like, you know, Captain Kirk style fighting. There's like a double fisted punch in one panel against the back of one enemy frogman's head. Never once does he think to take a tank to, to breathe, you know, and, and, and then he accomplishes his mission and swims off now. So I didn't find the story that impressive, uh, you know, Bob Haney, notwithstanding, uh, I did find the art really impressive. Uh, Mark Drucker draws the heck out of this thing. Um, they do try to make it more dramatic than I'm making it sound with this guy um, worrying about the mission and, you know, worrying about his chances to get off the beach. But he really just comes off as a whiny, paranoid jackass. He, he doesn't really come off as a hero except for his incredibly heroic capabilities. And then he's swimming away in what looks like a photo traced, you know, or at least heavily photo referenced Mark Drucker drawing of an Olympic swimmer in a pool getting away from the reef he just blew up. So there you have the reef of no return. And I hope stories like this don't return very often, my opinion. Well, the, the, the question that never gets answers as the guy swims away is, yeah, I hope someone's around to pick him up because that's a long-ass swim back to wherever is basic. Dude, this guy can make it. This guy can hold his breath and, and you know, like he was underwater for, what, 15 minutes and had, had a fight with three people and, and didn't even come close to losing, you know? Like he, he's probably going to swim all the way back to, I don't know, like, yeah yeah exactly it's and he'll be fine you know this well, is actually this, this, this is a dc comic you know maybe may, you know maybe he's like aquaman's dad or something like that who the hell knows? yeah he could be a secret atlantean he doesn't even know so yeah i mean this one eh there's there's there, there's nothing weird about it really i, I said it was it's, it's a typical 50s war tale you know you're like you said you're super duper capable you know American heroes and, and everything else like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. going back to a, to a comparing, you know, uh, original. Oh you know, yeah. Yeah. Reprint. The, um, they did change up the colors a little bit. You know, the green wetsuit uh, here was uh, in the original. I mean, was blue in uh, weird war tales Two. The, the blonde hair is orange. Uh, the, uh, in the original, it was the end, but here it's make war no more. I'm actually going to hop ahead a little bit and yeah. say they did that with just about every story in this book. If it said the end, 
in the original, it said "Make War No More" in the reprint. So yeah, I imagine you know, that's it's the '70s thing or, or something. Like I think that. it was a Kubert thing. I think that was one of his big deals. And since this was kind of his baby, this book, it seems you know, or he was at least very heavily involved. He's gonna put that stamp at the end of every story. And obviously they weren't saying that stuff back in the fifties that, that, that was un-American. <laughs> Gotta beat those reds. Exactly. So yeah, you know, it, it is cool. The like, it's interesting to me, the, the, the choices to change colors and all that. Cause obviously they have the originals and someone does have to, I would imagine recolor for the reprint if the masters aren't that great, or maybe it just even has to happen anyway. I'm not too down on the seventies version of the process, but it is interesting to me when they decide to change somebody's hair color or change the color of the frog suit. I'm doubting that that was for historical accuracy. It was just cause someone felt like, yeah, I like it blue or I like it green, you know? So, Who knows? yeah, so we're off to a eh start. Like this is, these are the, the, these are the images that this robed figure is deciding to show a probably dying man. Like, are you, are, do you want him to kill himself? I, you know, right there, it's like, that's, that's what you wanted to show me. Uh, this nonsensical story about a paranoid, super capable frog man. Thanks. I'm going to have some more purple water. And he probably does because then we get, yeah, we jump right into another story without going back to a framing sequence. And you can take that one away. Yep. This is called uh, The Moon is the Murderer. It's written by Bob Conagher and illustrated by Frank Thorne. And as far as it can be ascertained, we don't think that this is a reprint. This might be an original uh, original story because I couldn't, I couldn't find any references to this in any earlier books. Yeah, it's not noted uh, on Mike's Amazing World as a reprint either. So I'm, I'm like, is this the first original content in Weird War that isn't a Joe Kubert framing sequence? Possibly. So cool. But it's a, it, it's a four page uh, World War One story. No no word balloons, thought balloons, anything. The action quite literally tells the story. The only words that are in this story at all are you know the sounds of distance artillery shells and gunfire and bullets ricocheting and everything else. But it is a um, it's a World War One story. And it opens up with the muddy, shell-blasted no-man's land at night. And there is an American soldier, uniform and tatters. He's got his one arm wrapped in a bandage and everything. And he's kind of looking out over no-man's land. You hear the, you see the boom, boom, boom in the distance of, of artillery fire. And he gets up and he goes out on a one-man patrol. And on the other side of no-man's land, there's a German soldier wearing the uh, stereotypical pickle halb helmet with the spike on the top and for whatever reason he decides to go out on a one-man patrol carrying a captured british lewis machine gun well that's it's entirely possible i mean yeah that thing looks like bad news it's (laughs) really well it looks like this you know the american soldier's got like a pistol and then this guy's carrying around what looks like a cannon yeah the 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 muzzle on that i think is actually pretty misleading you know that you know the bullets swirly were were much smaller than that i don't know why they had the muzzles as big on lewis guns as they did but but yeah i mean maybe they captured it on on a on a trench raid or something like that and the guy just liked it and he said this is going to be my toy whenever i go out on patrol whatever it's 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 certainly plausible but um so each individual you know leaves their trench and they're doing this one-man patrol and the moon disappears uh, behind the cloud and then the moon comes out from behind the cloud and they see each other like whoops and the german spins and opens fire on the american who dives uh, into a shell crater and then he's just laying there in wait and the german comes up over a ridge line looking for him and he's backlit by the moon and the american fires one round and drops the german dead in his tracks and then he just gets american gets up and 
walks back to his lines to the accompanying distant art artillery fire with the make war no more little button on the lower right hand side so now this i i like this story i mean there's there's nothing weird about it other than you know poorly timed you know, getting up and walking around when the moon comes out. But you, you don't really see a whole lot of World War One stories anyway. But I, I really enjoyed the art. Um, I mean, this this the, the whole sequence of this story is, is obviously plausible. Um, I'll let you give you uh, your feedback. Yeah, on I was, this. I'll come back to it with a few more thoughts on that I have. Yeah, I was less impressed on first reading than you were. Like, I got it. It was a silent story. And I'm like, so the whole story we get here is two guys stumble around until, until one of them is like... Uh, unfortunately backlit by the moon and then bam fights over and i thought well you know that, that was a few pages certainly that happened but rereading it over the course of the past week and then going over it here with you and looking at these pages you know live on the recording i'm actually a lot more impressed with the, the visual storytelling now frank thorne i only knew previous to this as the guy who drew red sonia comics in the 70s he you know was famous for being the the main person that shaped the visual identity of Red Sonja at Marvel Comics. And that's all I've really ever seen by the man. And I really wish I had seen more and different kinds of comics drawn by him because the Red Sonja stuff is great, but you know, it's chain mail, bikini, cheesecake, sword slinging action. It's, you don't need to read too many of them to, to be all set with that. But this, like the, the visual use of the panels, the building of tension, the expressions on the faces. It, it, this, story is, this story is silent because it doesn't need anything else. It really, you can see from the body language, you can see from the moments that Frank chooses to portray, whether that was in Conagher's script or, script or not, they're still well executed. And even just, you know, again, just the pages look good, even as an item, like that opening page as a unit with the way that grid breaks down and the way the title's in there. It's just cool to look at, but the moments are incredibly well chosen. I love the silhouette work on the second page when it's the fourth panel that goes all the way across the page when you can see the silhouette of the hill with each soldier on either side and it's just darkness and they can't see each other and you know they can hear someone's moving around out there like that 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 silhouette is just great and really every panel in this works for me i mean not much happens in it but sometimes it's just cool to sit back and appreciate the craft of a story and then this is just fantastic i did wonder could that guy the final page fourth panel the american soldier fires his pistol would he be holding it that close to his face uh i, I would <laughs> probably say not that would probably would have been an arm leg an arm's length uh shot i mean it works for the panel really well i was just wondering yeah. if that would be coming right back in his eye if he tried it you know well we'll, we'll, we'll talk about stuff like this in, in late, later stories of this book but there's times where like the artist draws something you know and it's supposed to be all heroic and everything else like that but then we, you need to take a step back and you try doing what the guy in the comic book is doing and see how much that works for you i mean if he's firing the pistol at, at that range he's got to have some sort of i don't know his arm's got to be cocked at a really weird angle or something i don't know yeah again it works beautifully as a panel it's just like yeah when you try to envision what everything that's not in that panel looks like it would actually look kind of silly like his arms all scrunched up you know but overall i was much more impressed with this story the more i looked at it yeah. when and, i first and, went and, through it yeah i was like eh but now the, the, the detail work is there i mean like you know the, the barbed wire you know the shattered posts looks like in one panel there's um there's uh, ribs of a long dead horse perhaps there's all kinds of just neat little detail work 
you know, yeah, those ribs. I, I throughout the book. The Go first ahead. page, like, yeah, it's like it's technically panel five or whatever, but it goes all the way across the page. And there's what had to be a rib cage. And I'm like, what is that? But you, you, you dialed it in. Of course, this is a world war one story, all the trenches, you know, and maybe the uniforms you caught on to, but yeah, they had horses out in those, you know, and in action in world war one. So yeah, that is probably a dead horse on the first page. I mean, again, I'm liking the story more even as we're talking about it. So that's, what's good about going through old comics is taking the time to truly appreciate what you're, what you're looking at instead of just flipping pages and going, Hey, I'm going to get another soda or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, I mentioned the, the Lewis gun, you know, before, and like I said, it's, it's plausible. I, I wouldn't get all over, you know, the, the what would kill Joy. I know the uh, what would kill Joy do. What, what kill Joy was here. Um, the one thing I would um, nitpick on the story, though, is I mentioned before the Germans were wearing the stereotypical uh, pickle hob helmet with a spike on the top. And the Germans figured out, you know, by 1915 that that spike made the wearer a target. And it was actually discontinued for use on the front line by 1915. Some models of helmet had the spike that was actually, you could disconnect it. Oh, cool. So the pickle hob would all be used for like ceremonial purposes and stuff like that. I always kind of wondered why it was there. Like, was it like in case you just wanted to tilt your head down and charge at somebody like a rhino or did it just, they thought it looked cool? Well, some of this stuff probably goes, went back to like the 1870s. And if I remember the reading pro- properly, the, the helmet wasn't actually made out of metal. It was, it was very dense leather, so, which didn't do a whole lot of protection for, for uh, splinters or shell fire or anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so the error in this panel, in, in this story would be, this is an American soldier, not a British soldier, because I, yeah, I could tell by the gear. Uh, so by 1918, there would be no German walking around wearing this thing, especially on a, on a mission into no man's land. <laughs> yeah, so. again, I think we have the visual shorthand because especially it's a silent story and this is a comic from 1971 being sold to kids and that helmet means German soldier visually and you don't have any words you know, in this story so they're just trying to get the ideas across. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to justify that helmet real hard because I like these drawings but I do think a good comic book artist like Frank Thorne thinks of stuff like that. Like I'm trying to get ideas across, you know, as, as economically as possible. And I'm being told this story has no, no, no narration or dialogue. So I'm going to put one of those little pointy helmets on this guy in case they don't get it. (laughs) So we have that, which is a nice, uh, great little silent story that grew on me. And the next thing we have in the issue is a two-pager, which um, seems to be a tradition that they're starting in this book called Behind the Cover. So we get a little comic book story, yeah, about the story behind the cover. And again, that cover tells the story pretty much, except for the ending that's coming in, in this these brief two pages. So it's it's completely done by Joe Kubert. This is new material. We get, again, pretty much the same image from the cover, but it's not a copy and paste. This is a new drawing. Uh, the telegram in the background doesn't have the superimposed image of the soldier on his back, but it is overall the same scene. The girl's crying to her mother. You see Judith Crane is on the telegram. So this is the Judy in the Judy I Love You from Johnny picture. And it's just addressed to City, Missouri. That's that's Missouri, right? Yep. And 
is that just like, you know, they didn't even want to say a city or is there really a place called city in Missouri? I don't know. But. I think that's just laziness right there. They, I think they could have just said, oh, the hell the St. Louis is who'd know, you know. They could, <laughs> I mean, again, DC loves to make up fake cities, but they usually give them a name. So, yeah, we, it's a three panel page. It, it's gorgeous. It's by Joe Kubert. It's, it has one of my, as you've heard previously, I love when an artist is confident enough to do panels that don't have borders around them. And, you know, these have semi borders and then edges that just bleed. And the, the page is beautiful. It's, it's Joe Kubert just rocking it out I, I i love his this is at the height of his confidence and powers or, or so it seems because he is taking this meaningless little two-page story and making it look amazing so you have you have the woman crying to her mother i i dreamed that johnny was dead it was just a bad dream don't be silly there's been no telegram johnny's all right the doorbell rings and down they go and sure enough johnny is at the door and you know judy's crying and she's oh johnny i'm so happy to see you but i thought you were still overseas and he says i was wounded just a scratch they sent me home and judy tells johnny about the dream and you know, she says, I guess you can't always believe in dreams, Johnny. He says, I, I'm not so sure. Just before I got hit, one of my buddies insisted on switching dog tags with me for luck. And then we have, you know, we go back to a scene of that soldier on his back that was superimposed in the cover with a stick holding his helmet in the air with the dog tag. So you got the dead soldier that was killed in place of Johnny. So what's implied here is Judy had this dream of Johnny dying because he switched dog tags with a man who was then very shortly thereafter killed so you get a little weirdness here you know the the last line of the story you know it says you know johnny tells judy i received word a half hour ago that he was killed in battle so so apparently johnny's buddy did get killed at you know an hour or so before and that's the Oh yeah, he's he's laying there. He's laying there dead in the final panel behind the little circle panel of Judy and Johnny talking things over. So that's what happened to the guy. I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, so he's still laying dead on the ground, and they prop his helmet up on a stick. Like that's 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 um that's a Graves registration thing. Usually, what they would do is they put the bayonet on the rifle, uh, jam it into the ground, put the helmet on the on the rifle butt, and they'd just be a marker, you know, for for uh, Graves registration to come around afterwards. And, oh, all right. So this this actually would have happened. They would he would have been laying there with his helmet up in the air like that. Yeah. Okay. They wouldn't. I don't think they would have taken the dog tags off of him. They would have left the tags on him for identification purposes. And his weapon is right there. They could have just jammed the weapon into the ground unless they didn't have his bayonet or something. I don't know. This this the stick works obviously oh yeah it's a great drawing and Kubert uh, obviously he wanted the dog tags hanging it almost just i mean he's a he's a master craftsman that balances the image with those dog tags hanging if there was nothing hanging from that helmet there'd be that gap of negative space it's just again we're going to repeat ourselves every time Kubert draws anything in any comic book but even this page where it just sounds like a silly romance comic ending and it essentially is this page is also drop dead gorgeous to look at and he holds nothing back like it's 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 still full 100 percent effort cubert on a two-page nothing story based on a cover in which he already told most of this story so again we are big homers for joe cubert and he deserves it and uh you know even even though this is a throwaway it's it's still fantastic it's so worth looking at and um it's it's just a speed bump on the way to the next big story in this issue which i get away with handing over the synopsis to you for well, this is called A Promise to Joe, 
by Hank Chapman and Irv Novick. This was originally printed in GI Combat 97. This was actually the cover story, although the cover story in this case ended up being the last story printed in the book. The cover art for GI, 97, GI Combat 97 was actually done exceedingly well by, by Russ Heath, I think. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think the cover, you know, just, just, just the cover art would have been enough for me to pick up the issue. Although he didn't do the, uh, like I said, he didn't do the, story, the art for this story. Uh, GI Combat 97 is from January of 1963, and we shall jump right into it. This is the story of another flying fortress being besieged by enemy fighters, ME-109s. Now, and, are they actually ME-109s? Oh, well, that's probably uh, Killjoy material. But, uh. actually, um, <laughs> actually, you know, looking at the at aircraft, I mean, the angles are, are rough because of angles and distance and everything, you know, head-on shots and stuff like that. But from what I do see, I would not be distressed with calling the enemy aircraft ME-109s. That would actually be okay with, 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 the, with the description. Cool. So, but uh, the, the whole story, the whole premise behind the story is that there's two brothers that are serving on board this air, our aircraft, uh, Joe and Nick. And they made a promise to each other that if one of them goes down, the other one would defend his position. That's the promise. So here they are, they're flying on a mission somewhere over Europe, and Joe gets nailed by a uh, oncoming enemy fighter. And it's, it's, it's a pretty powerful panel, actually, because uh, Nick grabs his gun and flips it over, and he's firing through Joe's position. And Joe is slumped dead over his blasted, you know, 50 caliber machine gun. There's bullets zipping through the fuselage. And yeah, he's just, you know, uh, Nick is just there, you know, gritted teeth, just blasting away, you know, every enemy fighter that comes uh, zooming in on him. And it, it backs up a little bit, you know, and it, it tells you the, the, you know, the background of the story, you know, the whole, you know, if, if I fall, take my position and okay, I'll do the same thing for you. This is, this was their first flight with this crew and they were, they were feeling self-conscious about their ability to perform because all every, everybody on this crew apparently is loaded with medals and they're all heroes and stuff like that. And they just don't want to let the crew down. Yeah. It's like, Hey, new guys, you're in charge of keeping us safe. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So on this mission, the, uh, the fort, takes uh one of the fort's engines gets blasted by anti-aircraft fire which um makes him a straggler you see that issue that issue a lot in a lot of these war comics uh, a second issue uh, a second engine gets hit so they drop farther and farther back away from the formation and then here comes this whole row of enemy fighters diving on this straggler from out of the sun yeah that's a great panel uh, with them just like dots in the in the big orb of the sun descending on the plane that's really cool and they're all coming in on um on joe's position well joe's dead so nick grabs his 50 switches over and he's blasting away at up this at this row of enemy fighters just coming in one after another one after another one after another on on joe's position and they're really you know fixated on, on diving out of the sun you know after after about the third or fourth fighter gets blown out of the sky you think these guys will get the hint and uh try to go after the bomber from a position that didn't seem to have their number but they never seem to figure that out but uh the plane the, the b-17 is you know gets uh, limps back over the channel and um the, the you know the waste gunner is you know blasts one let one last enemy fighter and they shake the enemy fighters and they just limp back home and they land and the pilot goes back to see how nick is doing and he's dead too so nick and joe are both collapsed dead over their machine guns in this in this waste position and the 
story ends with the pilot kind of like rubbing his chin with the big old stogie in his mouth going, who fired for Nick? Make war no more. So very dramatic. Well, if they were both dead, who was shooting at the end there? Yeah, I was a little, uh, I know that's what they were going for, but I was like, how do you know when Nick died? Like he yeah. could have been the guy that was alive and firing and then, you know, then he, he dropped dead. He, yeah, he could have taken three hits, you know, and, and died blasting the last fighter out of the sky too. I mean, it's like you said, you, you know what they were going for here, but it's pretty easy to make that little baby jump and say, well, he just blasted the last fighter with his dying breath. Yeah, I thought the reach for, for some like kind of superstitious ending was was a bit much but overall i mean this is just a story that, that lasts a few pages and again irv novick i am i'm a big big fan of this guy more and more as i see more of his work and it's an incredibly well-drawn story actually in some panels it reminded me of another one of my favorite artists jim Apero. if you look at um page two first panel that shows nick you know the first time they show him blasting oh yeah for his brother that face that Nick has, that's a Jim Apero face, man. And you know, like Jim was probably younger than Irv. I'm not sure. He was, he was an older guy when I was reading comics in the seventies, but I think Irv came into the business a little before him, but man, that is a Jim Apero anger or stress face. And I love it. And actually that panel is the panel that Russ Heath drew for GI combat 97. That, that is the scene. For that's GI the cover. Combat. That's the cover. Oh, nice. GI Combat 97, you know, with, you know, with uh, Joe all slumped over and everything else and Nick blasting over his body and everything else. So, uh, yeah. And then they, the last panel with the pilot's face when he's going, hmm, who fired for Nick again? I think it's in the eyebrows and the um the forehead where it just really looks like a Jim Apero drawing to me you know it um the the way the action's portrayed the way the the panels are broken up the quality of the drawings and Irv Novick brings that classic newspaper comic strip illustrative skill to this story and I'm I'm all there for it I you know like I said the ending's a little wah, wah, but the story itself and it just the you know the way it's drawn and you know just watching Irv Novak give a master class on how to tell a story that has I think like two flashbacks in it you know like it has a flashback and a flash forward to a scene he already drew once and it never feels like they're they're doing it to waste space or to waste your time it, it keeps you riveted the whole time now, I don't know Chapman the writer from Adam I, I don't I don't know the name I don't think I've ever read a story by him but uh other than like I said the forced ending I would be down for more Hank Chapman in this series. So, so I, yeah, I was a fan, man. Yeah, the art, the art's pretty good. I, I, I didn't mind the art in this one too, uh, uh, too much. I, I, I could, I, I could, I could dig it. I could, I could get on with the way he told the story and everything. So, um, uh, next we have. <laughs> well, actually, there, there was oh. some. There was one thing I wanted to. do. All right, cool, throw. cool. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, this could loosely fall under the uh, you know Killjoy was here section, but uh, generally command would kind of frown on having multiple family members same to the same, assigned to the same unit, the same ship, the same plane, et cetera. You know, so if something happened, you know, one family wouldn't take a heavy hit all at once. Uh, the most famous example of that during World War II was the case of the, the uh, USS Juno. Uh, it was a cruiser who had gotten damaged uh, in a fight in the Pacific, and a Japanese submarine came upon it as it was limping back to base and put a torpedo into it, and the ship blew up and sank. And it was all, I think, like, 13 survivors and there were five brothers named Sullivan's on board and all of them were lost five brothers that's a hell of a hit to take all at once 
Yeah, and man. There was actually a destroyer that was named the Sullivans uh, that was named in their honor. That was launched later in the war. And the mother was the one that, you know, broke the... Oh, the really? Over the bow and everything else. Damn, man. So it's... it's Granted, you know, rules can always get be bucked. I mean, if, if, if a brother wants to serve with his brother badly enough, you know, in a tank or in a plane or something like that, I'm quite sure there'd be ways to get around that. But officially, for obvious reasons, it was discouraged. <laughs> yeah, again, there was no functional reason for these two to be brothers in the story either. They could have just been two new guys who had served together and said, hey, we don't want to look bad in front of this plane full of more experienced soldiers we're being assigned to, so let's make a promise to each other. But I guess it's just, again, it's storytelling shorthand, like brothers stand up for each other and you know, we're brothers in arms or brothers in real life. You know, it's just, it's more economical storytelling. You've got like just a handful of pages to tell your story. So you don't have time to have like these long detailed relationships with people. You're like, these guys, you know, have an understanding because they're brothers and that's what brothers do go, you know, and then two, three pages later, you're done. So I, yeah, I, I can, I can dig it. Like, you know, just the, the, the decision to make the story easier to tell. I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge part of the job when you're working on a short comic book story. Again, the next thing we have is a one-page text story called The Devil Rider, and I did not read it. I don't well, think... And again, I did, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's some sort of like American Southwest legend of a devil rider that would come out and every time that the country was about to enter a war, this rider would come out, and it was almost like a... a what, what the hell is the word I'm looking for? A, a precursor, a warning... An omen. The, the omen. There you go. That war was coming. And this guy was seen, you know, right before the war with, the Me with Mexico in the 1840s. And he was seen right before the Civil War started. And he was seen right before the Spanish-American War. And, and so on and so on and so on right up through World War II. And the only time you ever see him is if war is coming. So if you see him, there's war coming. And yeah, so next. <laughs> yeah, a whole page of that, huh? That's, that's amazing. It, it, there is a cool little uh, line drawing at the top of the page that was kind of neat. I could see that as like something cool to have on stationary, you know? You know, just like th that was all I got out of it was like, hey, that looks kind of kind of like a kick-ass drawing up top, but I ain't reading this. And then we moved on, or at least I did, to the next big story in the book, which is called Monsieur Grave Digger. You and loved this story, didn't you? I didn't. Ever, I struggled with it. I, I loved it, and I was appalled by it. I was confused by it. Um, I was, but again, I was really engaged and I ended up coming down on loving it again, but it's, it's a big one too. It's a longer story for this book. And there is a lot of word balloons. There's so many words in this story. <laughs> Again, oh there's so much talking. <laughs> it's so different than, than anything else in the book. Like we have a writer who I'm not familiar with, uh, Jerry DeFuccio or DeFuccio and Reed Crandall doing the art who I am at least somewhat familiar with. And uh, Reed Crandall just, again, uh, one of the themes I'm seeing develop here is even if I don't like the story in one of these, you know, one of these books, the art that the artists that they gathered for this series or even reprinted from or whatever is just top-notch talent. Reed Crandall draws an amazingly cool looking story here. So again, I can't find any evidence that this is a reprint. I, I didn't see any reference to that anywhere. So this might be another original tale in this book. Yeah, I, I couldn't find anything either. 
So yeah. So not only is this a you know an outlier in many ways, it's just it's yet another sign that they're starting to get more original material for the story. So we we open up. This is a story that um, focuses on the French Foreign Legion, and it's you know it opens up on Fort Fleur de Lis, Griddle of the Sahara, Ground Floor of Hell. I mean the whole intro blurb is excellent. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go ahead and read it. The, the writing in here is fantastic. It's just so overdone and amazing. It's it's incredibly self-indulgent. So here we go. Again, Fort Fleur de Lis, Griddle of the Sahara, Ground Floor of Hell. A company of legionnaires stands at arms for the edification of Sergeant Major Florimond Lubay. When Lubay drills his men, they exercise everything but their free will. I, I love that right there. The replacements in the line will get to know him as Monsieur Grave Digger. Uh, you know, I, uh, if I lapse into a bad Monty Python French accent, that cannot be avoided <laughs> reading this story. Um, again, the writing here is just fantastic. You've got, you got this, this, um, horrible commanding officer, Lou Bay, if I'm saying that right, that would be an accident, but, um, he's, he's, you know, making the men stand there and, you know, again, I just want to read his whole, he's standing there with his hands on his hips, arrogantly addressing the men. He says, is this not restful, mes enfants, to stand perfectly still like statues after a brisk petit parade? It is one thing to know how to march, another to stand firm on one's two feet. Was it Marcus Aurelius who said, a man must stand erect, not be kept erect by others? You know, it just, there's so much philosophizing and pontificating in this story. Like he's sitting there quoting philosophy or something like that to these guys who are just sweltering in the heat, standing at attention after a punishing march. You know, and finally, somebody goes down. Somebody finally falls. And it doesn't go well for him. The, the, the soldier who falls, you know, the, Lubay comes over and kicks at him. They drag him down into uh, to one of the barracks, I guess. And, you know, one, and a couple of the other soldiers come to join him to sort of comfort the guy. And uh, another outlier here is, Tons of these characters get names in this story. You know, we have this this guy who fell down for, in the heat is named Montaigne, you know. And, you know, we have um, two soldiers comfort the fallen recruit. They, I believe, get names. There's, you know, and these are some, like I said, philosophical French soldiers. And they appreciate the arts, too. There's, there's tons of conversation in these panels. They're, um, you know, they're talking about the Louvre and just, you know, having this, this conversation that isn't very typical of, of these kinds of stories at all you know they're um you know have a caporal they're they're passing cigarettes around because they're french montaigne mentions my home was on the seine i worked as a custodian in la musée nationale oh that's you know, again the louvre and so they're they're having this cultural conversation and just not the kind of stuff you expect in a war story and uh, you go to the second page man and here you're you're talking about the heavy word balloons the the problem i have with this story the first problem i had was again reed crandall is doing amazing drawings, but they're getting physically crowded out of the panels by these giant word balloons that almost get in the way of you understanding what is going on. Like, what happens next? I had a hard time getting a handle on. This dude wanders down into the barracks, introduces himself as Ramon Miranda, uh, Generalissimo of his own army. And it, it took me a while to realize this guy is just another soldier in, in the Foreign Legion, and he's talking about a side hustle that Montaigne could get in on if he's sick and tired 
tired of Lou Bay's crap. And, you know, because th- this is a guy, obviously, who who fell in the heat. He's been ridiculed by Lou Bay. And he's like, hey, man, if you're sick of that, I got some, I got something going on on the side here you could get in on. It's pretty sweet. So you turn the page and it says, six days later, the Generalissimo, you know, um, uh, Ramon, was called into the quarters of Monsieur Gravedigger. And it doesn't go well for him. They just show a set panel in panel like a, a square panel in between the two where there's a gun straight to Ramon's head and he's just looking over like, eh? And, you know, they the story is he, he uh, suffered. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. The story is he his demise was attributed to desert madness, a very sudden fit indeed. So the Sergeant Major, you know, Lubay, you know, then goes through, uh, he, he finds all the hoarded stuff and things that Miranda was, you know, uh, kind of like, siphoning off the top and using to to fund his little side hustle so lube decides to punish the men with a new game you know first of all he's you know double marches and all this stuff he's just you know everyone has to suffer now that he caught uh ramon running a side hustle and there's you know even one game where it's hurdles over racks of slightly inclined rifles with needle bayonets on them and each man was given the privilege of stripping to the waist to run and jump over these hurdles with, you know, very pointy bayonets on top of them. So basically, uh, Lubay is a dick. He punishes everybody for finding one person running something on the side. And maybe that's standard procedure, but he takes a certain pleasure in it. And then, you know, we we cut from that scene, we cut to like, um, suddenly there's this conflict going on in the desert between right. the French, was that? A desert caravan. Yeah, there's this conflict. Like there's a there's a caravan being attacked, and there's a there's there's this battle going on. And I guess it's you know the Tuaregs, if that's how you say it, are are the um the raiders coming down on the caravan, and you know or so they think. And the 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 caravan of traders actually ends up being the foreign legion in disguise. Legionnaires in disguise. It's yeah, it, it's a decoy. So there's this like there's this conflict, and it is pretty violent. You know, it's a war. Conflict. Comic, I get it. But again, I'm not sure what this little aside has to do with the story of Lou Bay being a jackass to his men. It's just like, hey, we're going to draw some fighting now. And in the meantime, there will be uh, some casual racism going on. Uh, where is it? They describe the Raiders as childlike savages at one point, which is nice. You know, like it's it's just a... There's there's a, there's a lot of descriptive stuff yeah. going on here. There's, there's, there's 20 legionnaires that are duking it out with these uh these these toregs on horseback and there's this one scene where one of them is is bearing down on a legionnaire that's reloading and again the the, the way the scene is described is a, a toreg with a great sword from the age of the crusader bore down upon him and then oh my whoa isn't that lucky the toregs mount buckled under the rider and fell and each of them came up holding the other one's weapon <laughs> so yeah, the legionnaire is coming up with the sword and the, and the toreg is coming up with the legionnaire's bayonet yeah it's 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 well drawn it's a cool battle you know sure there's some conveniences here or there but things happen you know but again the drawings are great the battle is cool um i don't get why this is in this story though it doesn't add anything other than showing one of the guys this ferric legionnaire um he's one of the guys that was sort of yeah, he was comforting Montaigne. He was one of the guys that was like, you know, talking to Montaigne in the barracks after he fell down in the heat, you know, and talking to him about the Louvre and stuff like that. And that's fine. But, you know, you know, he, Farrick takes the, uh, the Tuareg's horse and found a bag on the Tuareg's saddle full of freshly lopped off ears. Okay. 
all right, great. But what does that add to the story? Uh, nothing. So then the next page, we're, we're catching up with Montaigne, you know, the young man from Paris and the Louvre. He's wandering aimlessly in the desert, um, and he's not doing so good. He's discarded a boot because one of his feet is swollen. He lagged behind his platoon on a forced, on a forced march. So uh, Montaigne's right back into trouble. And long story short here, he gets captured. And, you know, here's the childlike... It doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, here's the childlike savages reference. Um, these a uh, small band of no mad Arabs has been watching the hobbling Montaigne. And the next panel, they say the childlike savages swarm down upon him, lifting him aloft, eager to rush him off for some sport you know, back at their camp. And so a half troop of Spahis, native policemen of the desert, find his boot. They track him down. They find the camp. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, Spahis, if I'm saying that correctly, um, one of the desert policemen sees him, you know, sees Montaigne in the tent and is horrified and almost shoots him out of mercy. We don't see what's up with Montaigne. We just see his hand raised up from off panel in protest. And because he says something and, you know, begs for mercy, the policeman doesn't shoot him. And then we cut back to the Legionnaire's camp. And there's some idle chit-chat going on on the on the grounds. And there's Farrick, the guy who um, did so well in the battle against the would-be caravan raiders. And one soldier says to him, Farrick, did you see Montaigne when the Spahis brought him in? Yes, I saw him, poor devil. In a way, he had it coming to him. And so the other guy's like, you dick, you know, why would you say that? And Farrick now reveals the twist. Like, I pegged Montaigne for an informer the moment I saw him. So the conversation they were having when Montaigne fell and he took him to the barracks, he was kind of leading Montaigne is what he reveals. When he talked about the Louvre, he dropped details that Montaigne confirmed that weren't true. Like, Besides, Cellini's statue of Perseus is not in the Louvre. It's in some other museum. Museum in Italy. <laughs> yeah, the Logia d'Alanzi. I don't know how to say that in Florence, Italy. So you know, he's basically like he was testing him to see if you know he was he was lying about his cover and just basically confirming that Montaigne was a snitch for uh, you know the merciless Lube. And you know, so okay, you know, all right, we got it. You know, like he he um was snitching on his own men, but it didn't seem to do him too much good because he ended up lost in the desert and captured on a forced march anyway. He wasn't getting that much preferential treatment out of being a snitch. So meanwhile, in the fort's dispensary, the Legion doctor is taking care of Montaigne, you know, looking at his face that bears the fiendish handicraft of the Arabs. He regards the cheeks that have been slit perpendicularly and threaded through with twigs to form a bizarre latticework. So they mutilated this guy's face. They cut his face, you know, and, and inserted twigs through it and just mutilated him for fun. So, you know, we end with a final panel that says, pulling the twigs free, the doctor knows the man will live with hideous scars. Henceforth, his fellows must take him at face value. And we get the make war no more button. And then I wonder why the story wasn't called face value because they put that in bold at the end like it was some sort of pun. And then instead, it's called Monsieur Gravedigger. And yeah, Loubet is a jerk in the beginning, but he honestly doesn't appear in the story very much and nothing happens to him. He just gets to keep being a terrible person to these men 
at the fort. So again, I have a story that I went up and down on. I was confused by, didn't like, then liked, loved the art, but the art got crowded out by giant word balloons that some of which I found very entertaining anyway. So for me, it was a very confounding story. I, I really I really like it. I, honestly, in ways, it's my favorite story in the book, but man, does it have a ton of problems. I don't know. What, what, what was your uh, vibe on this one? Well, I think it reads like one of those classic, you know, newspaper adventure strips where it takes you a month you know to get you know to the point of a story the um there was i'm, I'm surprised there was one scene in the, in the in the story that you know you'd mentioned before that you really really liked and it was after the um the fight between uh Farrick and uh and the one um the one raider where he uh brought the heel paint of his label down on the deflated toreg skull like a self-vindicating little boy who had failed to blow out any birthday candles on his first try i mean that is a hell of a <laughs> oh yeah i did forget to call that so much a sentence right there that is that that is such a beautiful piece of writing right there because you can almost vision it being like a temper tantrum or something like that I really should have called that out because I, I was talking like like you said with you about this before and that just I guess it's part of the what confused me about that scene it's so almost joyously explicit in describing the violence and yet this conflict has no bearing on the overall story at all it's just you know this writer wanted to dive in whoever DeFuccio is he wanted to describe the crushing of an Arab skull uh, with such detail that it seemed like he was enjoying it a little too much really you know he seemed like he was enjoying a lot of this story a little too much but especially this to me kind of pointless aside fight scene yeah but the um the the french foreign legion was famous for being rough like capital r rough i mean there was um the the french foreign legion actually had no problem with bringing nazis in, in into its ranks after world war ii because okay war is over we need people welcome to the fold we know we know you know how to fight which is you would think that would be a little surprising but no there were plenty of germans that were in the french foreign legion after world war ii and there was plenty of things for them to go because all these wars all these colonial wars that the french were fighting in africa in southeast asia all their all these little colonial dust-ups as they tried to hang on to their empire were going on through you know all all over the world yeah, that's news so they, they would take as, me, as much help as they could get i i, I did not realize that that's uh, <laughs> that's you you are some pretty rough customers when you're like yeah fine we'll take the nazis you're probably just going to die anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Might as well be you that dies. Yeah, that's just it. yeah. It, it did get across this story. If that's the case, this story did get across that the French Foreign Legion ain't nothing to mess with. It's it's like um, the the officers are horrible. The people are betraying the troops from within, ratting each other out, and when they get into fights, they they can just crush an enemy's skull and ain't nobody gonna ask him about it it, it was this was a heck of a like it, like there was nothing weird in this story but it made my eyes pop out a few times you know so uh, again i give this one high marks even though i i i also wouldn't in the same breath say that it was um good you know it it, it has so many problems but it's, it's so like, well this is the story that i would actually probably just kind of like gloss over because there's too much writing in it i'm like eh, 
that's the next one. <laughs> yeah, I got close on that one page where it really looked like the figures were being physically pushed out of the panel by word balloons. It was like one of the worst instances of um, Chris Claremont's X-Men, like when he got really self-indulgent. And there, there's so many examples out there of that, of like just, you know, Cyclops is in the bottom corner of the panel because the rest of it is a giant word balloon that apparently Cyclops is saying to himself in an empty room, you know, and it was getting close to that. So I, 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 pushed on through anyway because as we've pointed out a lot of the writing in this is just strangely compellingly lurid and weird i, I was like is this an ec comic you know <laughs> like it, it just felt like it belonged in one of those war comics yeah. you know so yeah man I, I give i give this one really high marks just for the experience of reading it and um you know next um next up in here we have a one-page humor gag because you need a break after that story it's a little one-pager called military madness and it's all by cartoonist john costanza who i honestly am not familiar with um by name i mean his style looks very uh mad magazine and it's not even a very good joke that it takes a lot of panels to set up. It's like, yeah, this soldier visiting, uh, this captain visiting a mad scientist type up on his castle. And, you know, it's like, it worked. You know, I created the, you know, this thing. And it says, one brown eye, one green eye, knock kneed, pigeon toed, tongue tied, and ugly. Doc, he's perfect. He'll make the best drill sergeant I ever had. Yuck, 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 yuck. Yeah, it's, it's a Frankenstein monster with you know, Sergeant Stripes saw on them and it's, yeah, it's, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> it is not even kind of funny. So we'll go on to something that was much better and I'll hand it over to you since you listened to me talk about that military madness thing. So take it away. Well, I guess I listened to you talk about Michelle Gravedig over the last 45 minutes. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we breezed right through that, didn't we? Uh, you know, that was painless. Yeah, well, the next one, it's called Sergeant Rock's Battle Stations, Military Specialties of the Armed Forces. It was written by Joe Kubert, and this is our first look into the art of another legend, Sam Glansman. Yeah. Now, you've heard me jones about uh, Joe Kubert. You've heard me jones about Russ Heath. Now you're going to listen to me jones about Sam Glansman. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> And um, again, just with Joe, just like Russ, I had the opportunity and the privilege to meet Sam Glansman. I got his signature on all kinds of books at, uh, at one show or another. And um, he actually lived about an hour and a half away from where I do. And uh, actually, you know, when he, when he died, I, I lived close enough. I was actually able to, uh, to attend his funeral service. I've, I've befriended his widow. I've spent some time with his widow and stuff like that. Um, I've, I've visited Sam's grave. Uh, I visited uh, Joe Kubert's grave with uh, Sam's widow. Her name, her, her name is Sue. Yeah, you've established quite a relationship um, in a way with, with Sam and his family. You were going to broker um, kind of like serve as a go-between for a meetup between Sam's widow and uh, Joe Sinnott at one point. Yeah, um, because um, but going through, I, I got the ch chance to go through Joe's house, uh, through uh, Sam's house, and all the art that's on the walls, his drawing studio, all this, these stacks of drawings and stuff like that, models of tanks that he would use, 
you know, for points of reference during his drawings and stuff like that. And yeah, I was yeah, talking. You weren't, uh, you weren't too much of a kid in the candy store at that point, you know. Oh, well, she's, she said, you know, whatever you want, take it. Oh, you know, my I, God. I got a pile of stuff downstairs. You haven't even seen this stuff yet. Uh, I yeah, I mean, like, we, we <laughs> you know, we're, we're recording this in 2020, people, and um, in November. And uh, it's a roll of the dice one week to the next if you're allowed to travel from one state to the other. So, yeah. But um, there was uh, there's a, a local uh, convention in Albany in March, and um, I was talking to her, and uh, Joe Sinnott and Sam Glansman had been tight. They've been good buddies, both of them were World War II vets and stuff. They worked together for years and years and years. They used to hang out together all the time, and she didn't know that he was still alive. So I told him that, yeah, Joe is still alive, and she's like, oh my God, really? So I was I was just like what you said. I was I was I was uh, he was going to be a guest at this one convention, and I was I was, I was talking to the powers that be at the convention you know sue was all on board we bring him in for free have a meet hang out you know photo time you know listen to the stories you know and then COVID hit and the convention was canceled and joe died about two months later I think. yeah and i was just like ah damn it but uh but Sam, Sam was a pistol. I mean, I, I got a couple of really, really good stories about time. I some of the times I spent with Sam and everything. And I really love his art. I've got archives of all the USS Stevens stories. That are, that's based on his World War II service and everything else upstairs. And um, this is a, a, a two-page a two story called uh, The Grenadier. And it's pretty much all about distance weapons. It starts off with, you know, like a spear. And then it goes to uh, like a wooden sheath that you can whip off of a knife. And then escalates to a blowgun and then it, most of the story talks about the rifle grenade or the m79 uh, grenade launcher you know the whole you'll know, reach out and touch someone <laughs> it says like well you, if anything that uh, can, re- can, re- can reach out farther than you can throw something is, uh, is good for you so but yeah it's, it's just it's just a quick little one two three story two pages they did a lot of stuff like this just talking about you know weapons the evolution of weapons and it's just the fact that uh, that uh, Sam Glansman did the art on it is was one just one of the things like ah oh, yeah here we go and the last panel of it is you know it looks like it's some sort of like winged space creature on an alien planet that's kind of like lurching towards this landing craft and there's an astronaut that looks like he's going to try to shoot at him which is i don't know we're, we're kind of joking about that the weirdest thing about this story is that you no know, joe kubert thought to write that but okay well whatever <laughs> yeah i mean i i got the impression like because this little two-pager is titled sergeant rocks battle stations military specialties of the armed forces this gives you the impression that this is some kind of continuing feature or it intends to be. And it's, you know, focusing on the very concept of distance weaponry, you know, and like, like you said, it, it goes through the history, uh, some points in history of humans designing things that can hurt people that they can't quite reach. And you get to the, you know, you get to the Grenadier and then at the end, he's just sort of pontificating, like, I wonder how many more ways we'll come up with to hurt things that are over there, you know, in the far future, maybe. And yeah, it shows like a little sci-fi image at the end of, um, like you said, oh, a, a creature you, descending on some poor lone space traveler who's got some little pistol, like, ha-ha! <laughs> like, you, you've done that, and you, you've set this up for me, and I just can't leave well enough alone. It just reminds me of that famous George Carlin bit, you know, about just like how flamethrowers got invented. It's like, yeah. gee, I sure would like to set those people over there on fire, but I'm just not close enough to get the job done. If only I had something that would throw the flame onto them. 
And of course, yeah. he mentioned to his friend, his friend who was good with tools. <laughs> yes, that is essentially the, you know, the, the, the message of this little two-pager. I mean, along the way, you get, and, and, you, and I'm going to bring this up, the, uh, there's, there's about the art, but um, first of all, you get an incredibly cool Sam Glansman diagram of the M79 and like basically uh, all the pieces and parts labeled just a little like informative boop. And I don't know if it's accurate, but it looks really cool to me. And I'm, it's Sam Glansman, so I always assume it's accurate. But I love stuff like that, like, you know, these little instructional educational diagrams dropped into these comics. You know, I, I just thought that was neat. We'll, and We'll probably see a lot of those. I hope so. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope we get we'll a lot of a lot Sam Glansman showing me all the parts of equipment i will never touch it's it's just oh, really cool stuff to look at ho- hopefully we'll find uh moving forward into some of these other issues of weird war we'll we'll find uh stories that actual stories that he did not just these little two-page something or others yeah and now i said i was going to bring up something about the art now Kubert wrote this Glansman drew it. Those are the credits, but my God, the second panel with the guy whipping his knife sheath into the foreground looks like Hubert drew it. And that last panel with the space monster, either Hubert did some inking or he drew a couple of these panels is my opinion, because the style looks very different than the panels around them. At least, at least the embellishing does like that soldier at the bottom of the first page, the lines are very clean and not you know, over, I don't want to say over rendered because Joe Kubert doesn't over anything, but he definitely, Joe had a more fussy style with more lines in it. And that panel with the knife sheath looks like that. And the panel with the space monster looks like that. But, you know, I guess the, the, the art credits are completely Sam Glansman. Now it's maybe Sam was doing something in a Kubert esque style for a panel or two. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> I don't doubt it's possible, but it just stood out to me like, whoa, you know, like maybe because I've never seen Sam Glansman draw a space monster, you know, and I, I don't know how it would look when he does that. But that being what it is, we have uh, we have another story to move on to here um, called The Face of a Fighter. And it's it's not a good one. <laughs> This is a this is another one of your typical 1950s war tales. There's nothing really weird about it. It's your, you know, yeah, it, it it it's a 50s war tale. Yeah, this one goes on forever. But the problem with that is, is that this story, the face of a fighter, was written by Bill Finger. Yes. The Bill Finger, who <laughs> co-created, or in my opinion, mostly created Batman and most of the- Probably getting credit for it. Yeah. Most <laughs> of the things interesting about Batman that um, that weren't created by somebody else other than Bob Kane. Yeah. And it's and it's illustrated by Ross Andrew and Bill Esposito. Now, I love Ross Andrew. He was a favorite of mine um, very late into his career. Um, I, I encountered him, I believe, drawing Spider-Man comics much further down the road. Um, but I, yeah, I've always dug his art. And I have a lot of respect for Bill Finger, but man, I could have done completely without this story. It's essentially... Uh, it was, like it was a, originally printed as the third story in Our Fighting Forces 25 from September of 1957. And, yeah. and you got the robed figure inserted into an opening page of the story. And he's talking about the face of a soldier is a changing thing. For only in battle does it become battle. It does become war hardened, war haunted. Easy for me to say. Yeah. In battle, does it become war marked? Only in battle, does it become 
different, you know, so overly dramatic. Yeah, I mean, this story, like I said, I wrote in our little, you know, pseudo script here, it's largely a cautionary tale against the cosmetic effects of excessive squinting. <laughs> it, it mentions the soldier squinting so many times. Like basically you have a fresh faced young recruit who's sent out into combat, you know, sent out into the war zone. And he looks like uh, somebody out of Archie comics in the beginning He's, you know, just like, hi, you know, I'm an innocent young waif and out he goes and all these things happen to him and he starts squinting and, you know, changing his, but they mention how he squints so many times. And, and, and then by the end he has the dirty squinty face of your regular Clint Eastwood type. And that's the whole one patrol. Yeah. That's the whole story is he gets dirty and squinty while he's fighting. And there's a, uh, you know, like you said, when was this reprinted from what year? 57. Cause yeah, there's like a midget comment in here. That's just like, okay, way to go old comic books. You know, not only is your story kind of just about how, being out in combat will make you look a little rough by the end of the day, but I don't know where it was, but they're, like I said, they had to make a midget comment in there with that word. And it's like, thanks. So, you know, Bill Finger, I love you. And, 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 and I, I really, Ross Andrew does what he can with the story. The actual drawings are, are quite good. I don't want to give the story complete short shrift um, because it is well drawn. The, the action is, even with some pages have like eight panels on them they they never seem too crowded or cramped the story's very clear um it's again it's just not really doing much it just shows you that this guy now has the face of a fighter and make war no more because you will get all dirty and squinty if you do and then i'll let you finish the story content we go back to well actually uh, my, there, there oh yeah yeah a few things i wanted to just jump into on Facebook. I'm like so eager to blow past that story, but yeah, man, go ahead. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for, right? <laughs> well, on, uh, what was it? One, two, three, on, on page four, there's this one scene right after he makes one of the midget comments where he, um, he throws a grenade, you know, at an enemy mortar while he's lying on the ground on his chest. And there's multiple things wrong with that whole sequence. It's just like, have you, first off, have you ever tried throwing a baseball when you're laying on the ground on your chest? Give it a try sometime and see how far it goes. Just you know, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm but pretty sure when I, was in, when I was in Little League, I think I ended up lying on the ground on my chest a few times, but I didn't try throwing anything. Yeah, but lo and behold, you know, the grenade knocks out the enemy mortar. And hey, you know what? If the mortar is that close, the mortar was probably shooting straight up. <laughs> probably, probably stood as good a chance of getting hit by your own shell coming straight down as you would from hitting the guy that you're aiming at. Hey, man, he did all that while he was also squinting very hard. So that's very impressive. <laughs> and uh, this story also does the egregious uh, story of, you know, you got the sniper when he drops his weapon and or helmet to the ground. That happens three times. The last time is, I think, is the, is the funniest because the, he, uh, when the soldier, you know, hoses a tree with his Tommy and he gets the enemy sniper and he drops his rifle, the rifle has his bayonet hanging off the end of it. And like, as I... You know, because, you know, snipers shoot with bayonets hanging, you know, attached to the front of their weapons all the time when they're hiding in trees. And yeah, I mean, like a squirrel might. into the ground by the bayonet. So that was the, that was the, uh, the, perfect, <laughs> the perfect ending for that little engagement. Right? It is a good little touch. And, you know, the bayonet <laughs> and the sniper rifle, you know, they, there might be squirrels up in them trees. You know, you don't want to waste a bullet on those. It's stabby, stabby. <laughs> Get away from me. 
give me your nuts. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but all right, to finish up, we go back to the Oasis and uh, Joe Kubert's typical mind-blowing art. And this is a two-page wrap. And uh, the hooded figure is just like, well, I'm done. I'm, uh, I'm going to leave it here. And uh, the survivor's like, wow, I, I saw everything. I felt everything. I was there. He's like, maybe you were there, but I got to go. And he's like, wow, I don't leave. I suddenly feel cold. He's like, fear not, soldier. You will not be alone for long. I will add your story to all those whose deeds touch the desert sands. Farewell. And he just walks off into, this, into the desert and leaves him. And then he, he, uh, back at the wreckage of the tank and the aircraft, a German patrol uh, finds the two wrecks, sees the footprints heading off to the oasis and follows the footprints. And you come to realize that the survivor was not an American tanker. It was the pilot of the German Stuka. And he is lying dead next to the oasis. And the dry desert sands absorb the last drop of your blood. Now your story is added to all those who play the game of war. Make war no more. Next issue on sale on or about November 18th. And you make the comment here is, this, is in case you weren't 100% sure if he was a German or not, you know, his flying helmet has the great big oversized swastika, you know, blazoned on it right over the goggles. So you, you know he was the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't bother to read. The, you know the panel it didn't even bother to read the word balloons and the you know panel right up above that would get across to you if you're just paging through this that <gasps> the whole surprise is that the survivor was a german oh okay all right and now you he's know. dead yeah. it doesn't add much yeah exactly it'll end up like this guy drinking purple water and hallucinating robed figures telling him pretty much confusingly bad stories but what what there was a disconnect for me where the old man the robe man in the beginning told this guy you have many more dangers to face and then he's like eh you're dead i gotta go yeah <laughs> like, drunk the purple water <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody drinks that all right fine bye you know and then and then we're out you know and uh the, the issue proper is over but as usual uh with um with this show we're going to talk about some of the advertisements some of these great kick-ass old ads and uh, one, one of the things i'll kick in here real quick is um i uh, have a whole bunch of like old magazines that i that i i, I keep for um historical purposes and stuff like that and you know when you Harder. when you read it when you read a new magazine you don't read the ads but when you read something that's like 30 40 50 years old you almost prefer to read the ads as compared to the story because the ads can be so freaking cool sometimes with just whatever whatever the hell it is that they're trying to shill you know, you know the way it's written in either the racism or the sexism or just the complete corny uh, hokishness, hokey, whatever the yeah, hell. They're like, they're like cultural, they're like cultural shorthand too. Like when you see what people are being sold, you see what sort of world they're being expected to live in, you know, like, like, yeah. or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. So you can tell a lot about a society by what people are trying to sell that society. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and like, so we dive into it here and I'm, I'm probably going to cut off a couple of mine. Um, but I'll, since I, you know, I'm banging on the, um, the social norms angle here. One of the ads I want to talk about is Kenner's easy care manicure set. Yeah. Like Kenner made a set for little girls to make their hands look pretty. And it's, it's like the ad is done up and I'm a page back to it here. Like, a scene in a comic book and a little girl's getting ready to have a party and she's standing there before the mirror and she's like mom my party dress is beautiful but my hands blah gosh mom isn't there something i can do before my party now mom who already knew her daughter had like ugly hands says 
you're going to open one of your presents early. It's Kenner's Easy Care Manicure Set, you know, and the thing has like five battery powered attachments. It's got a blow dryer, comes with nail polish. It is ready to go. And it's, you know, all about making your hands look pretty. Now, this girl is like, I don't know what, seven years old. And and the deal is she has to have a Kenner battery powered manicure set. She's like, oh, mom, I love it. And I'll never bite my nails again. And just what, what stunned me the most about this, not, not just the fact that you're talking about little girls giving themselves a manicure so they're not embarrassed at their party, is at the very end of the ad, it says, other Kenner sets for little modern miss are Easy Curl Quick Hair Setting Kit and Easy Curl with Light Up Mirror Vanity. So there was a whole line of these don't be so ugly little girls toys that they were selling, you know, from, from this Kenner. Is, this, is, this is practice for you to land a man in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was just flat out stunning to me, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, by contrast, there was an ad when he opened the comic for a contest called Punt, Pass, and Kick. And it was directed right at boys, you know. And it was a no-contact football contest sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. And the prizes included trophies, tons of trophies, and a chance to play during a halftime, uh, during halftime in an NFL game or even at the Super Bowl, which would also include a tour of New Orleans for your family. Like, so the boys got that in in this comic and the girls got stop having such ugly hands little girls here's a battery powered manicure set the thing about the football contest is i noticed registration was august 16 through october 1st this comic came out on september 23rd so you know pretty tight timeline i wonder if any of that actually came through and, and happened. So you got a little gender disparity in the advertisements which is not surprising. So um those are two of mine. That, that really stood out to me. So, you know, you, uh, <laughs> you noticed the all pro sport shirt. New from Clark bars, all pro sport shirt, your name on your shirt, just like the pros. So like all pro sport shirt. So what, like a, a Jersey. And it shows like the back view of this kid wearing a helmet, all cocked back to throw a football number 10 with Lenny written across it. <laughs> Come on. What says 1971, like being nicknamed, Lenny. <laughs> that's just fantastic. Your name on your shirt, because that's you. There you go. In case you forget, <laughs> just two Clark Bar or Zag Nut wrappers and a dollar fifty, and this can be yours. Oh, you know, differing it. colors of you know, ideal for football, basketball, hockey, baseball, tennis, beachwear, soft durable, one hundred percent cotton knit jersey, washable, color fast. Available in your choice of three sizes and three different numerals. I mean, be still, my beating heart <laughs> also good for standing alone in your room with no friends and wondering why your mom named you lenny just awful like and, and, and these comics are full of stuff like this that i wonder if anyone at all ever sent away for and i i want to bring up one that, that's very iconic to me but it also ties into what you taught me earlier is called a pickle hob helmet if i'm saying that right yep. there was an ad in here for the red baron model kit and back inside back cover all yeah yeah and um you know my first confusion with that even as a kid because i had like a hot wheels or a matchbox version of this car it's like a little hot rod with a giant uh german helmet with a spike on top of it you know it just that thing was all over the place in the 70s in different forms and even as a kid i was like isn't this a bad guy helmet like now we're playing with a toy that had a, a pre-nazi or you know 
at least a helmet with very bad guy connotations attached to it. And in another part of the ad, it's referred to as a surfer helmet. Like they were trying to distance it from, from that connotation. So uh, that just always confused me. And I had forgotten all about it until I saw this ad. Like, oh, the Red Baron. Okay, A, that was a bad guy that also Snoopy was going after all the time on his dog. Well, this house. is the 70s, remember? All those peanut yeah. specials were coming out back. Yeah, and it's like yours for only ten cents with trial membership in the science program. That's that's not sinister at all. Maybe the Nazi connection is more real than I've started to think. You have to participate in the science program, and you'll get this Red Baron model. You know, so this ad, um, you know, was was a big one for me because it just brought back a memory of having this little miniature car with this spiked helmet on it and you know even as a kid just wondering 70s hot rod yeah why why is this a thing why do i have a bad guy helmet on my car so that stood out to me i mean i I just don't get why that was so popularized back then and then what's up with joining the science program to get a red baron model kit there's there's a story there and it's probably more interesting than especially the reef of no return (laughs) you know and then we have patches you can get patches (laughs) (laughs) 85 cents for three or more peace love woodstock sergeant pepper flash gordon ah the 60s really a year in the rear view (laughs) i mean that's 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 tradition that's a tradition in comics that funny the wily coyote and roadrunner with the beep beep and the confederate flag and the stp and yeah Yeah, it's a tradition in comics that, um, and you know, I think in pop culture in general, that the beginning of one decade is is really just, you know, the first few years of your new decade are just yes, running out the gas. The old one. Yeah, running out the gas tank of the old one. But yeah, just buy some damn patches. Here you go. But on the back cover, we get an ad that kind of redeems company that had an ad in the first issue, Aurora. You know, in the first issue, there was that terrible ad for those knockoff boxes of soldiers with really crappy art for the advertisement. But here we get an ad for what Aurora has become nostalgically famous for, their model kits. And the art on the ad looks cool. The models that they talk about look great. Like this makes you understand why Aurora is something that people are nostalgic about. There was one part about this that kind of lunged out at me it there's uh, on the lower right hand side there's something called photoscope kits they're models you should look into because they're models you can look into submarines with insides you can see and it right away i'm thinking yeah nuclear submarines oh i'm quite sure the navy has nothing to say about that so because <laughs> they don't want you to know what the reactors look like and everything else I actually had, yeah. i don't i don't remember photoscope kits or anything i had to actually do a little bit of research on these things all right apparently um aurora had uh, four photoscope kits in its 1971-1972 catalog two were tanks and uh, two were subs Uh, one one of the subs was was uh, the skipjack it had the photo tube down the hatch that once opened to show the nuclear reactor the other one was the nautilus which had the tube through the hull from starboard to port but the funny thing is both subs the the interiors were of the u505 a german submarine that's now on display at uh, Chicago's Museum of Science Technology. That was actual, actually a battle capture. It was captured on the high seas. Uh, <laughs> Aurora's uh, director of model development asked, like, like I just said, asked the U.S. Navy for photos from nuke subs, and the Navy said, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, sure, buddy, here you go. So, uh, so the, the director of model development, Jim Keeler, he went through the U-505 sna- snapping photos for Aurora's kits. Now my, my, my big th- take on this is just like, you couldn't 
at least get aboard a World War II U.S. sub. It had to be a German one. <laughs> hey, this model kit has a deadline, man. We gotta, <laughs> we're got we working on a timeline here. This, I know where a sub is, and I'm taking some pictures. So, yeah, so I, I found that whole thing you know, you know, you know, pretty amusing. But um, uh, That's cool. I, I don't even think I noticed that in the ad. I was focusing on just the art and, like, you know, memories of people who've been talking about these models. Cause I don't think I ever had an Aurora model kit. I wasn't much for patience and putting things together. Piece I by piece. built hundreds of them in my youth. I still have like a, a big box or two downstairs of like the best ones that I didn't break up or parts. Once I took a, took a step back one day and looked, I'm like, wow, this sucks. Smash. <laughs> <laughs> I had so damn many of them. I couldn't keep them all anyway. Well, yeah, I know you had, you did a lot of, you know, you did a lot of work with models as a kid and growing up and because I've seen a lot of them and uh, you had the patience, you know, and, and all that. I, I, no, I, I've never had any of that, but uh, I like looking at a really well put together model and everything. But, you know, for me, I, I've never heard of this photoscope thing. I'm going to look into it when we're done here. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a cool little gimmick. Obviously they were trying, you know, a, you know, a way to make their models even, even more interesting than the competitors because man that you know the model uh, hobby is pretty cutthroat out there competition was hot back then yeah, yeah. So there we go. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, we have Weird War Tales number two. I, I I talk a lot of crap, I think, about the stories in these early comics, but I really did enjoy the issue. I, I, I Even if I don't like a story like The Face of a Fighter or whatever, I still love the craft involved, the drawings, the storytelling, the experience of reading the book. I still really enjoyed this. I am in no way regretting uh, starting out at the beginning here, uh, way before I came into the series. Because Again, when I'm when it's someone like me who doesn't have every war book ever published like you do, um, <laughs> like gonna see these stories reprinted from the fifties and and so forth. So I like this issue. I'm looking forward to number three. Again, the ads are amazing. The art is fantastic. Um, Monsieur Gravedigger will haunt me until I die. Um, <laughs> I dug the issue, man. What was your what was your overall final take? Yeah, I mean the um, yeah, you know, again, you know, Joe Kubert art, Joe Kubert art. Any, anything that Hubert did, you know, I was all in on, you know, the Reef of No Return, meh. Uh, I already said how much I, I enjoyed the, the moon as the murderer. And there was just that, that story really talked to me, despite the fact that there was no talking in the story. Find the cover. Yeah, okay. Just like in issue one, I, I, I really liked, you know, the B-17 story in issue one. Again, this one promised to Joe, another B-17 story. It's, again, I just, I love the plane. I love the ruggedness of it. It's, it's, a, it's a neat story. Although the fact it's not weird per se, it's entirely believable that this something like this happened uh, monsieur gravedigger meh uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean I, I totally get that reaction to it uh, it just fascinated me for reasons that it didn't mean to fascinate me so that's unfair i mean promise to joe is probably the technically objectively best story in the comic even though art is subjective promise to joe is just better the final panel can be completely disregarded but yeah man i, I get that reaction to gravedigger and face of a fighter same thing your typical 50s War comic, nothing weird about it. Really, it was just 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 a war story. Really, I mean, it's just 
just weirder crap. Weirder crap than that has happened. So. Yeah, again, good art, and uh, you know, I, I I just like the craft involved, the panel to panel storytelling, the overall page design, the story itself. It, it's it, you know, I went into this issue thinking, oh my God, there's like a there's like a bunch of superstar creators. There's Bill Finger, there's Mort Drucker, and eh, the actual writing eh, wasn't so great. But <laughs> but uh, but overall, great issue. In many ways, I enjoyed the heck out of it, and I'm ready for issue three. So we're gonna wrap it up here, and until next time, we shall make war. No more. <laughs>